in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. A few years ago, um, a Sunday afternoon in, in Hong Kong, I'm coming down the road and I'm minding my own business, and it looks as though there's a massive strike or sitting or some sort of roadblock going on. It is as though thousands of young women have gathered and are really, are really sitting in the middle of the road and look as though they're actually enjoying themselves, having little picnics and talking. I said, what? Like, what is, what is this? Like, why aren't the police here? Like, like, what's going on? I said, no, no, these are the servants. These are the women, many of whom have come from the Philippines. And they work these, uh, as you say in your novel, they work these extraordinary hours in, in houses. By law, they have to get one afternoon a week off and this is how they're meeting each other. They're gathering for their only time of the week where they're going to be off. And there is a sense still in Hong Kong of it being a strange colony, of it being not China and not Britain, but funny moments where you think this is like London. And then the other moment, this is like China. And then you go up the hill on the escalators you so lovingly describe that go what, down in the morning and up at night and then that you're in an extraordinary world of privilege in which having one servant would be really a sign of poverty, but that people are living on the hill with um, people working in banks, people still working as though Hong Kong were a separate place to China. And it's, it seems to me a sort of gift for a novelist, this strange hybrid place I suppose just encountering a little bit more friction in my environment, a little less everyone automatically speaking English and so forth. So that was more interesting for me, but for the purpose of writing the novel and I suppose keeping a milieu that I felt that I personally could accurately describe, I decided to go into the sort of expat that I encountered there who had no interest in anything other than pretending to the maximum extent possible that they were still in London and situated among those people, while not losing sight of the fact that a world exists outside that. But I think sometimes you need to narrow from what you know yourself because the things that we are exposed to far outstrip the things that we can feel we've got down correctly. So... You know, I've been to many more cities in the world than I would consider setting a novel in. So I think on that note, I, I took something that I felt I could get right rather than trying to capture the endless complexity of this amazing place that I, you know, saw so many more hints of everywhere else. But I think as well, I did it because 
I knew I wanted to write a novel about people's intimate lives and I suppose for that reason the geographic scale also needed to contract or like I say contract the geographic scale like it's really not a big place at all like huge population and high density but yeah I, I think I wanted to capture the claustrophobia that, to use a dire phrase, the prison of the mind can give you, even when you're in the most maximally exciting place, which is a tricky thing to do with a first-person novel because I wanted the heroine to be palpably miserable, largely through things that kept playing in her own head that weren't the fault of her environment. And to capture that without leaving her voice in an obvious way was difficult but that was what I was attempting I suppose and how I brought in some of what makes Hong Kong unique but then equally wove in a lot of Starbucks and buying salads and Marks and Spencer's and all these things that one can do pretty much anywhere. I mean in order to get the sort of intimacy the claustrophobia the, 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 the sense of outsiders expats in this extraordinarily rich place I think you had to make a big decision to leave certain things out of your book in other words, it's not a novel about the problems between the Chinese and the Hong Kong liberals. I mean, it's not a novel in which, you know, an Irish girl goes to Hong Kong to find that she's caught up in this extraordinary political change. That I think is emphatically not that. And it's really brave of you to decide, actually, I'm not going to put in the sort of cliche background of, of um of the political row that's going on between Hong Kong and China. That's not in the book. Yeah, it was also a matter of timing because I wrote the book in 2017. The publishing industry being what it is was only out in 2020, but like 2019 was the latest time that I could have made edits. And I thought in this time, I'm not going to be able to write an entirely new book that addresses the recent resurgence of huge protests against Chinese incursions. And I think it is much worse to treat something flippantly than to simply keep it set at the time where you wrote it. So that's why I chose to keep the novel set in 2017 when it was a relative lull in political unrest rather than keep this novel that's mostly about relationships, but then every few chapters go, and by the way, there was a huge street blockade where people were terrified about losing their democratic freedoms. Like, I, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think it is a book of its time. In its, I think it's the only book I know that has started to deal with that big question is, if young people cannot find anywhere to live, then how, how is that going to affect how they live? In other words, if you can't get a flat, if, if you're sharing with too many people, if the possibility of leaving home isn't great because you just that's not available to you. And, and there's a moment in the, in the, early in the novel where Julian, the Englishman, says to Ava, who's the Irish woman, um, you know, we are never, you are never going to be able to buy a house in your life. It will never be available to you. And we are, we are, he's, he's a banker, he's making more money, but he's pointing to you as the English teacher that if you don't do something big with your life, like become a lawyer and a candidate or a doctor, like there's no chance for you. You will never have your own place to live. And in the, when the novel begins, you know, you're living in this extraordinary um, you know, Airbnb with two other women, but, the, but you get offered a place by two other people later in which you, they just simply put a bedroom in the living room and the door of the flat opens into the living room. So your bed is sort of right in the middle of what everything's going on and that's an offer. 
you know, but that the whole business of what Ava's doing all the time is her helplessness, her homelessness arises from an, an economic situation which she finds herself, which so many people in Ireland do, uh, and indeed in England. Yeah, it's impossible to parody. Like recently, when I was looking for a place in London, I saw somewhere advertised there was a converted laundry room and it still had a washing machine. And it said in the advert, features washing machine. Like it's this great boon to your quality of life to live in a essentially a closet. And I, like I think it makes it possible, certainly for me to take an interest in the psychologies of people that I don't think I would have a generation ago. I think if I were my parents, it would not have been possible for me to find it interesting why someone would be a banker, because the answer would be to make lots of money. There, there's no other real reason that someone would do that to themselves. But nowadays it's so I can live alone in my 30s, <laughs> like, so I can not be burdened with huge crippling debt. Like if we think about Julian as an English person, that guy is in like what, five figure debt minimum for having gone to university. Like that is insane and it's worse in the US. And then because the US is essentially setting the standards for how we all live, we're all crawling towards that slowly. And the worse it gets for them, eventually the worse it gets for the rest of us. So yeah, um, <laughs> ambient sense of doom. But the thing about ambient sense of doom is like, it's never all bad. I, I think no one wrote about that better than Viktor Frankl. Like the, the parts where he's, most psychologically astute when he recounts the horrors of Auschwitz are that even at the absolute nadir of human experience, it simply cannot be all bad for you because that is not how you keep going. And it's not that you feel some like higher motive to try to strive forward because you believe that you owe that to someone or owe that to yourself. Like maybe for some people, not for the majority, but just on a primal maintaining homeostasis level, something in you will find something good. So. Yeah, I, I think that produces a gallows humour. I'm obviously not comparing the situation of any characters in my novel to the conditions that Frankel wrote about, but the fact that he can find that even in those conditions, like I think things can be incredibly bleak and it can still be kind of funny. And I think that maybe explains why everyone in the novel is like that. I mean, as we know from them, history is the nightmare from which we're trying to awake. And, um, History in your novel is, um, one of the histories is the history of the, how English is spoken in Ireland and how English should be spoken. And um, those of us who have worked as English language teachers really got it. I mean, I was working in a place in Barcelona called the Dublin School of English. So we thought we, at least we ran this place. But no, we didn't because a good number of the teachers were English. And I would say, and I still don't know the correct usage for this, I would say, is, is it okay if I bring this tape recorder into my, into my class? I said, bring? Don't you mean take? Said, oh. And then they would say, you know, you Irish, you don't know the difference, do you, between bring and take? And uh, are you teaching that? I mean, is that what you're teaching in there? Are the students going to come out uh, besides saying dis, dat, dees, and don'ts? Are they getting bring and take? All wrong. I mean, is, is this is how you're doing this? I, uh, you look, um, your account of trying to get this th, and the problem, you see, the problem we have is much worse than just getting it wrong all the time. Like if you say this, that, these, and those, that's just fine. But every so often you try to talk like basic <laughs> this. Oh, you've just done it. This, this, this. No, this, this. And you think sometimes you try and get it right. And then every so often you tell them there's no such thing as right. You know, it's how people's 
Yeah, and so this is one of the great dramas in the book because this is what Ada's doing. She's, she's teaching in a school, she's teaching these privileged kids, but effectively she's trying to teach English, thinking that she speaks it, but then being told regularly that she really doesn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I am semi-regularly informed by people that they come from a specific region of Ireland where the TH sound is widely used. <laughs> it's like we, we do this to ourselves, so we do not need Brits around us to have this bizarre hierarchy around phonemes. But you were precisely on the mark with you don't know the difference. Whereas I would imagine those people would be hard-pressed to explain the difference between sure look and sure listen. But those statements are miles apart. Like, and, and without being able to explain to you exactly why one is correct and the other isn't, I can use both of them perfectly because I grew up with regular usage sure of those. Sure look, sure look, sure listen. Give yeah. it to us. Sure look. <laughs> Sure, listen. Like, I, I feel like sure, listen is more positive, but it's not as straightforward as optimistic versus pessimistic. It's more like, I think sure, listen, you're about to correct someone on the bleakness that they've just laid out for you, but sure, look, you're with them in the abyss. <laughs> You know, you're, you're down with them in the well. Neither of you can see anything, but sure look. <laughs> but sure listen, like there's birds singing somewhere. That an escape is here. We don't need to go finding it immediately, but there are prospects with sure listen, I feel. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember the, with the first times, um, I mean, we, we must be very alarming you know, outside our own context, where I just said about someone I didn't like, some political figure, said, ah, he, he just should be shot. Someone would say, oh, <laughs> don't, don't you think that's rather strong? And I thought, you know, to try and explain th th that sort of speech, but Hong Kong is the cauldron in a way because it's where Englishness is, is almost parodied in the names of pubs, for example, in the whole way the bankers dress, in the whole sense of trying to preserve and English is, it's like Gibraltar, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and then on top of that, you've also got um, sort of the local mode of extreme directness, which I loved. Like after decades of trying and failing to decode work emails from Irish bosses, I had a Hong Kong boss who just said, yes, full stop, when what she meant was yes, full stop. And there was no subtext to be gleaned. And if there was more than the full stop, she would take the impossible human step in this country of simply typing more instead of saying yes, full stop and having something in her head that she'd get angry at me for not getting. Like, I think I leveled up massively as a person from dealing with people who are relatively comfortable with saying what they mean and not saying stuff that they don't mean. And I think once you've had exposure to that, you'll never change completely, not least because I have a whole Irish family that I need to not offend by sending yes full stop when all I mean is full stop. So like, I'll, I'll add more sentences for them gladly. They did raise me, so I suppose I can give them a few sentences in return. But I, I think knowing that there are ways other than constant self-betrayal to communicate with people is something you can really get from more direct cultures. And it's reflected in the language too, like Cantonese is really, really efficient compared to English. I think similar to German in that respect, if I have to translate, not that I'm in the business of translating huge amounts of words in either, but if I'm trying to say something in either language, it often takes far fewer words. And it's so hilariously paradoxical to have that layered with the sort of Brits who tend to have been there long term, who use, if possible, even more sentences than the Irish do to say things, although they speak considerably slower.
Then there is a small business that I think all of us know from some time in our lives of trying to phone home. And if you're trying to phone home, people of my generation, it was always the cost. This phone call is costing a fortune. And meaning, like, say something really important. Like, it, are you phoning? You know, it's Christmas Day, that's okay. But if it's another sort of day, get it over with quickly, the whole thing. And then there's a whole difference. Um, I mean, my father was dead, but for friends, like, your father wouldn't know what to say on the phone. So I, 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 I'm, I, not Mr. I put your mother on. Just, he's desperate to get that phrase out of his mouth. I'll put your mother on. And so I think your version of this in, in, in Exciting Times is just so brilliant. Your ear for this, for just... Also, I should say that your, your protagonist is not helpful. It's not as though she's the nice daughter abroad who's causing them no worry. I mean, she tells them nothing. And then what they get, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's another case where... I didn't want to unconvincingly leave her head and have her describe the world outside that head, within that head. But I hoped it to be available through the dialogue that this family clearly would like to be getting more from her and for her to be actively remembering their existence and their entire complete human lives outside hers in a way that I think understandably, if she's young and abroad in this huge exciting country, like she just forgets. And it's kind of old hat Ireland. And I think what she's immersed in just fascinates her a lot more. But something can be uninteresting to your heroine while being very interesting to you. So then the difficulty arises, like, how do I give this Irish family their due without just portraying a completely different dynamic to the one that I think would occur based on what I already know about this character and I can't, like, rewrite her entirely to a different one because she was already there in my head like that. So... I try to let them speak as much as possible, but then that's so hard with Irish people, especially the dads, like you say, because either we say way too much that's not about the thing, or we just don't say anything at all and outsource it to the person who's better at speaking, which is usually your mother instead. So um, I tried to get it across. I hope I succeeded. Yeah, and I mean, there's a problem also called the brother. And um, <laughs> the problem your character has is that she should not have told him what she told him about the banker, because of course he's going to tell the mother, who's going to say all along, well, I guessed. And uh, but, there's, but there's that whole business, I think, of um, she's, Ava is so, Ava? Um, Ava. Ava. Ava is so confident in, in so many ways. She's, she, she's, she's watching, she's studying, she knows things. But those phone calls reduce her to being the daughter of the people in this house. She's back home. She's her daddy's little, daddy's favorite girl or something. She's her mother's worried about her. But, but it is as though that, that, that those lovely levels you live in when you're away, where you can, you can become who you were when you were 14 so easily. Yeah, and so I read your novel Brooklyn maybe a couple of years before I wrote Exciting Times, so it wasn't freshly at the front of my mind, but I think that's a timeless thing about Irish emigrant dynamics that, you know, nowadays because of technology, back then because there would be some sort of local nexus that would involve you, there is someone to remind you that there was a U-shaped place and you should try as best as possible to fit within it. I think the youngest brother is in a way more chastened than the parents in what I portray because they don't really have the sort of authoritarian power that Irish parents used to. But the gaze of the younger sibling who is now suddenly mysteriously an adult and doing fine for themselves and able to assess you as a fellow adult 
when like five years ago, you could just throw them a crayon and they'd be fine with you. I, I think that's what really terrifies her about the family. It's not the parents anymore. It's having someone she views as an equal and going, well, if it's not the traits that you project from this guy's class status, what is it exactly about him that draws you? And that's really not a question she wants to answer, I think. I, years ago, I was in Egypt and, and I met this really nice English couple. And when I was coming home through London, they invited me to stay with them. And that was just great. They were really nice. And they had a really nice house. And it was all going great until their cleaning woman appeared. And she was from Clonmel. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, you're from Enniscorthy. <laughs> and then we talked about various things. And, you know, the, and the, when she went, the English people said to me, do, do you often do that? I said, what do I often do? Your accent changed completely. In other words, when, obviously when I was talking to them, I was trying to, you know, talk in a way that they would understand me and wouldn't constantly say, oh my God, listen to your brogues. But the minute, of course, Mrs. Clanmel appeared, I was straight into, like, this, oh, you brought her vows and, and escorty and, you know, and I didn't even know I was doing it. Now, there's a fellow called Oshin. <laughs> <laughs> just, just uh, you know, the big problem is if you're trying to make your way in Hong Kong with all these English people and all these Chinese people, the last thing you want is a fella from Gonzaga who went to Gonzaga, if you know what that is, some sort of posh school who plays rugby, who's going to like appear. Another Irish person is the last. Yeah. <laughs> I think Irish people have a bottomless and remarkable ability to dislike a slightly different Irish person, far more intensely than we can dislike any other human being on the planet. <laughs> so wherever Ava and the Sashin character grew up in Dublin, they were possibly even within walking distance, long walk at worst, but he is to her a level of intolerable that anyone else that she encounters in the novel cannot ever aspire to reach. Any other character could set fire to her face and it would be less bad to her than encountering someone that she knows specifically has chosen to be as bad as he is. I think, so this character went to Gonzaga, is out in Hong Kong, is trying to ingratiate himself with the privately educated. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, as such fellows inevitably are, or if not that, then Fiyoko or some such. But <laughs> So he's trying to establish himself as the Irish version of these English guys. But of course, there's no Irish version of English anything because they're way smaller. It's like when people try to go, well, Trinity is the Irish Oxford, but it can't be because we have five universities. Like how could Trinity be the Irish version of something in a country where they have dozens of, like it's just absurd. So he's one of those absurd sort of people. And Ava, A wants nothing to do with this, but I think B can locate him in a way where it's not that the English characters in the novel are necessarily worthy of her admiration or in receipt of it. But I think there's a certain mystery around them and a certain ability to give benefit of the doubt. Like, maybe they don't know what they're doing. Maybe they didn't choose to be this way. But anyone called Ashing Me to Gonzaga, who is as such a person generally is, has chosen this. And you know as a fellow Irish person that they've chosen this. So I think that's why the hammer of judgment falls so strongly and you just want to get away from them. Sometimes the book is very funny. I mean, that there is effectively what's going on is a sort of comedy between Julian, the English banker, and Ava, the Irish waif, or the Irish homeless girl. 
and of course, who's immensely clever as well. So they have quite a nice time together, sort of sparring and having, having sex. And some of, some of these scenes are very funny, but there's a chilling moment. Um, it's around Christmas when the, the first sign is going to get is where the English, she, she could, she's overhearing them on the balcony. They don't know she can hear them. And um, they're all in their, in their late 20s, early 30s, they're all bankers. And one of them just says, where is Galway girl? I mean, where, in other words, they know the song, so they want any Irish girl as Galway girl. Where's Galway girl? And then they start actually talking about her. And it's misogynistic, it's sexist, and it's racist. I mean, it's really awful. Julian doesn't really take part in it, which is very nice. So she doesn't, it isn't as though the man she's with is being found out. It's just his friends. That's the easiness of it. It's the sort of naturalness of it. It's boys talking, they mean no harm. But it's chilling, isn't it? Yeah. I... And weirdly, that dialogue did just write itself. And they just appeared to me as these talking heads dictating it. And I did think afterwards, like, should I give this a bit more external cue of what's happening? But there was really no need. You can just hear how they would say it, even if you are lucky enough never to encounter such a person in your life. So uh, they're self-powering. You can give them that at least. I think that one of the challenges anyone who has who's going to write a novel using first-person voice is, how clever will this person be? How much will they notice and see? How will their take on things be? Um, and I think what you did was you went back to the very roots of the novel in the 18th century, to something like Moll Flanders, to one of those sort of quite amoral, immoral women who have a great story to tell about their own adventures in the metropolis, the, the men they were with, the things they stole, the things they said, the things they thought and that you put that into a first person. And one of the things you can get away with then is making your Ava, your protagonist, quite unpleasant. I mean, in other words, that, you, that from the moment she starts, you realize she's capable of making really darting judgments on others. She's capable of having motives that are certainly less than pure. She isn't bothered whether you like her or not because she's too interested in a way in the story and in the, her own phrase-making skills. And um, you, you become immensely fond of her, not because she's good, because she's not good, but you become immensely fond of her because of her way of telling the story, of her way of keeping the story alive. That the question is, is, is her story interesting? Yes, because she's making it so. And, you know, instead of this being a love story, will Julian marry her or will, will he not? It becomes this really strange relationship between this very sort of hollow figure who's away, who's back, who doesn't know what he wants, who's become a, a sort of, um, you know, he, he, look, he supports Tony Blair right to the end. I mean, yeah. And no one did that. And no one. And, uh, you know, like, you go, oh, no, he didn't. And, uh, and, and his father is more radical than he is. But, but I, I suppose what I want to know is how, how worried were you about creating someone who some readers could think, well, she's very unpleasant, this Ava. Yeah, so I love that you brought up the 18th century because I'm a big 18th century head. You know, this category of person, the why they exist. Um, and I think I place her somewhere between Moll Flanders and Pamela in that sense. So there's the Moll Flanders amoral sensibility. But then from late in the 18th century, when we get heroines like Pamela morally assessing themselves, Ava does that. It's just that unlike these very virtuous women, she assesses herself and then goes, 
yes, that was dreadful of me. And so, and then back to Mole Sanders in terms of ultimately not caring. So I think 18th is a better century to see it as following from the 19th in, in that sense, because my sense is that from the 19th century onwards, authors became a bit more conscious of their own reputation. I, I suppose in part because there was more of a literary culture where modern communications would link things more to your direct person. Whereas, like at the time of the novels I was talking about, it, it wasn't even widely known that a person had made this up. It was like, especially with Pamela and the huge sort of literary sensation around that and people just thinking that this woman actually existed and writing like passionate letters to her and such. So I think that mentality of how do I separate me, the author, from my characters, I think comes later in literary history than that tendency. But then I think where that links to me, because I definitely didn't have in my head, I am going to be 18th rather than 19th century in my sensibilities. I think for me, it was so late into like, because I really started writing in the era of prime women being exploited for confessional content to get their start age, like the age of the personal essay where someone gives you 200 quid to talk about the worst thing that ever happened to you in as much detail as you can and you're grateful to get the 200 quid and I hate all that so much that I was like fine I'm just going to not let it affect me whether people associate anything that I write with me because I'm not going to have any control over whether they do it or not like that ship has long since sailed the assumption now is that if you are a young woman who writes you do it in order to give yourself free therapy and then get someone else to pay for it. So if people are going to be annoying, fine for them. I get to have more interesting ways of engaging with the literature. Anyone who wants to come to me in my corner and think about language, style, context, anything that's not, did this happen to the person who wrote it? You know, I, I think it's a more enjoyable way to go through life, but um, I, I can't control whether or not others follow it. So. Can, can I ask you to expand on that a bit? Where um, um, do, do you think there was a different? There's a difference in the way a book by a young woman is received, or the pressures on a young woman who's writing a novel, than, for example, um, someone of the opposite gender. That that there is some pressure on to say, actually, we need to know about you, uh, and that you were in fact resisting that. Uh, um, yeah, I think. It's hard to gauge in terms of my generation because there are fewer, I would say, successful male novelists my age. And there's always a terrible kerfuffle over whether you can say that because people think that you're saying like, are you saying women shouldn't be allowed to be successful? It's, it's just like if you look at prize lists, there are just objectively of the young people in those prizes, more women than men. And there are all sorts of fascinating reasons for why that is the case. I don't think it undercuts any true statements about misogyny in the world, including in the literary world, to acknowledge that reality. But then equally, if you look at the reception of writers like Caleb Azuma Nelson, like, because he wrote a novel about a young black man and he's also one, equally those assumptions are made. Or Brandon Taylor, again, equally those assumptions are made. So I think what that has in common with the way that I've received that sort of frustrating reception to my work is, it, it's kind of assumed that if you're writing about a less maybe culturally esteemed form of, form of identity, it can't be because you think that that interiority is interesting. It can't be that you're choosing it from all potential interiorities to explore, because who'd go doing that when you can 
write a novel about something better. So it must be out of despair, out of thinking there is nothing that you could be worthy of writing besides the miserable life of a young person with ex-marginalized identity. When it just seems to me that everyone's interesting and if some people have been written about less than, than the fruit is lower hanging for finding interesting things to say. That's not to say that it's easy at all. Like in many ways, it's far more difficult writing about characters that you haven't seen as widely represented. Like I cannot read hundreds of books where bisexual Irish women have been sensitively and fascinatingly portrayed in the way that I can with straight Irish men. And so there is more of inventing your own tradition, either through taking stuff that you've encountered outside literature and making it literary or taking literary representations and wondering if it is the same if you change X about a character's identity. So it can be just as hard, but yeah, I think it's a form of condescension that is annoying, but that ultimately doesn't stop me writing because I just go into my happy space then. I just want to ask you about bisexuality, about the, the fun of using sexual fluidity in the book as a sort of picaresque gesture. In other words, she can move on. If Julian's away, Edith will come. You know, there will be someone else for her. She's very good at finding a place that amuses her. You know, Hong Kong is made for her in that sort of way. That she's not, you see, she's not, um, she, she has no money. She's an awful job, um, but there's a sense of her so ready for life, so ready for the next day. At each party, she sort of thrives. People come on to her, and she, she's able to insult people or decide not to. There's a constant sense of her as a sort of sparkling presence, and that includes a sort of sexual fluidity. Yeah, yeah, I think... When I write, it's a bit like The Sims. They're kind of sexually fluid unless proven otherwise. So when you play a computer game, The Sims, your Sims are just by default able to be so attracted. <laughs> Does everyone know? That is nothing left than my entire childhood column. It's so, called The Sims. So, and what is it? Look, we, we don't know. So it's a little bit like writing a novel where the computer does 97% of the work for you and the most interesting bits aren't done. So you get to create a character, you choose their appearance. Depending on which edition of The Sims you have, you may be permitted to choose, I think, up to five personality traits, which is all anyone needs. Frankly, five is too many for most of us, I would say. And then you can make them a Sims house and get them a Sims job and they will advance in their career through the um, laughably simple mechanism of making friends and getting promoted once you have a certain number of friends. Like it will say on the screen where you go to check how they're doing in the career. Okay, to get to the next level and job, you need to acquire, say, seven in this skill and you need two more friends. And the way that you make friends in this game is you phone someone that your relationship points have recently fallen low enough that you need to re-befriend them so that you have enough friends to get advanced up. But I think the point I was originally making with the things is... You're making this up. I don't believe... I, well, I mean, I would have been on this all the time if I'd known about it. I'm not lying. The only reason I started writing novels was because it's really hard to get The Sims on MacBooks. <laughs> <laughs> if I still had a PC, I would still be hopelessly addicted to this game. And are you saying on Sims that everyone is bisexual unless they prove otherwise? Yeah, and you can never prove otherwise, actually. Like, I think... Over time, with the later editions, if you have your sim flirt with people of one gender or another predominantly, 
the game kind of learns those preferences. And so if you put it on free will mode, which is a mode, and there's also the mode where you just tell them entirely what to do, then I think if you've had them manually flirt with 10 people who are all the same gender, the game kind of thinks, okay, they're probably into that. But yeah, by default, completely open field. Yeah, and I feel like it's like that with my characters, which well, makes it quite messy sometimes, deciding well, who'll be into who, but. I mean, this is exciting times, Nisha Dolan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.